If you would please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Pick up in verse 39 where we left off last week. Asking a question, do you realize what God is doing? I'm going to read the passage together beginning in verse 39. I'm going to leave off the Magnificat because we're just not going to get that far today. It's just too much uh, for one Sunday. But um, the Virgin Mary here has just learned that she is going to bear the Son of God in her womb. She's also been told by the angel Gabriel now that her her, uh, elderly relative Elizabeth is also with child. Uh, She has John the Baptist in her womb. And these are her next steps, beginning in verse 39 of chapter 1. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judea, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Well, as we departed last time, we took note of the fact that Mary's spirituality was put on display. It was done so uh, by the fact that she responded enthusiastically to that which God had revealed to her through the angel Gabriel. Uh, She's going to bear God's only son. And of course, she probably understands there are going to be numerous challenges associated with that. She she has a husband that she's betrothed to, soon to be uh, a marriage yet soon to be consummated. Yet her reply in verse 38 is to say, May it be done to me according to your word. The young Mary, she was instinctively cooperative with God's plan here. Do you notice? And, and why do you think that is? Uh, what might have provided her the courage that she needed uh, when she heard the word of God spoken through that angel uh, to respond with urgency in the way that she did? And I ask this Partially because there are a lot of Christians out there that will hear snippets of God's Word or verses of God's Word here and there. Much of what we hear sounds real good to our ears, but we just aren't sure how everything fits together. What is God doing? Since we're not sure much of the time, we don't act. But we're going to see here Mary and, and, and soon now Elizabeth as well. They're both going to be rejoicing. They're going to be responding very enthusiastically about what God is doing. And I hope as we look at this, as we look at this passage, that we'll be stimulated as well in a similar manner. Because it is very possible for a Christian today, uh, many Christians today, in fact, aren't engaged. And a lot of times we're not engaged because we don't exactly understand what God is doing. And really, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that Christians are sometimes confused because we're getting numerous messages out there from the world. We're having narratives handed to us by the culture that is continually pressing us to conform to its mold. It wants the church to conform to its priorities. So the world puts out false narratives 
as to what we should be doing. They say what should be expected of Christians. In fact, Satan circulates many false expectations of Christians and churches that keep us distracted from what God is actually doing. But in Mary and Elizabeth, we see they understand exactly what is going on here, exactly what God is doing. So let's review by uh, looking at the context. If you haven't been with us uh, in the last couple weeks, in verse 39, the Virgin Mary has been made aware by the angel Gabriel that her relative Elizabeth is pregnant. So we see in verse 39 that she, she hurries to go check up on Elizabeth. There's a trip here to Judah uh, or G- Judea uh, from Nazareth. It's probably a good 60 miles. No less than 60 miles. It's quite a distance for a young girl at that time. So how did she travel there? How did she get down there? You know, we aren't told. So apparently it isn't that essential to the understanding of the story. Instead, what Luke emphasizes in this is that she's in a hurry. She doesn't delay. If her parents were involved in this decision, which I anticipate they were, I presume Uh, They were anyhow. They likely arranged for her to travel along with a caravan, possibly of of merchants that were known to the local communities, possibly even some from Nazareth that would have been going down to Jerusalem or Judea, probably trustworthy people that the family knew. We're also not told which city Elizabeth and Zacharias reside in. We don't know that for certain. But it was in the hill country, we are told, which probably indicates Uh, south of Jerusalem. What is very important is what happens next. And it's when Mary enters the home and calls out Elizabeth by name. This, This baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb and she is filled with or controlled by the Spirit. I'd like to take just a moment to put up a slide of what a typical home might look like in Judea. Typically, as you would enter a Judean home in the, in the hill country, homes that they've excavated there, they'll have an, uh, an open court in the center. You'll enter in, there will be an open area where there can be cooking and there can be open fires and other things. You'll walk through, and then surrounding this open court, there will be rooms with, with, with roofs on them. Some will be for storage, others for sleeping, others for bathing, and, and other things that they need to store for their... Uh, for their daily life. My impression is, is that as, as Mary walks in, that she probably comes through into the courtyard there, and Elizabeth is in one of these back rooms. She might be resting, Elizabeth might be working. Remember, she's elderly now, she's six months pregnant. Mary probably entered the open courtyard, not seeing Elizabeth, and she called out her name. So we see in verse 41 the response from Elizabeth. It says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? The the sound of Mary's voice brought great joy both to Elizabeth and her child, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth prophesies. She prophesies. To prophesy simply means to speak forth that which God has revealed. 
God has revealed something to her. This is why we call it a, a revelation, right? God has revealed something to her. And, and, and we read that she speaks this revelation as crying out with a loud voice. The point that we're meant to observe here is that there is no way that Elizabeth could have known this information. It had to be revealed by God that, that her relative Mary was pregnant with the Lord. It's only something that God could have done. And when God reveals something and you speak it out, when God has a revelation and you proclaim it, in this case by crying out, it is called prophesying. In, in fact, in a in a different way, when God has revealed something and you're speaking it to others, in a sense, you are speaking forth God's word. That is prophesying. Speaking forth for God. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks because uh, Zacharias is going to prophesy as well, we're going to see. Only God could have revealed this to Elizabeth. Uh, for you young folks here, you're probably not going to believe this. No phones, no text messages. This was the first contact that Mary and Elizabeth had had since the announcement by the angel. Um, it's the same God here who revealed to Mary in verse 36 that Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. Now God reveals to Elizabeth that Mary is pregnant with Elizabeth's Lord, the Christ. So Elizabeth here, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, makes three announcements that are revealed to her. She says that Mary is a blessed, uh, uh, blessed woman among women. We're going to look at the Magnificat next week and see how she is blessed. Elizabeth also says that the fruit of her womb is blessed. That is Christ. And she also announces that Mary is carrying her Lord in her womb. It's very important that uh, we note this narrative leaves little doubt that Mary and Elizabeth, uh, being relatives, they were very familiar with one another. Very familiar with one another. Elizabeth immediately recognized Mary's voice. They weren't strangers to one another. This isn't the first time they met. They weren't distant relatives who had really never known one another before. In fact, when traveling to the numerous feasts and festivals that were held in Jerusalem, uh, it is very possible that Mary's own family members stayed at the house of Zacharias and Elizabeth during those feasts. Very possible. It, it's by no mean a, means a stretch. It, you young folks also realize they didn't have a Motel 6, right? They didn't have what we had today. When traveling to Jerusalem for a feast, Israelites largely relied upon people who were hospitable, people who would open their doors, preferably a relative, preferably a family member, ones that they knew. And since we already know from verse 6 that both Zacharias and Elizabeth, his wife, were, quote, righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, we can be pretty confident that when relatives would come to the house of Zacharias and Elizabeth while attending any feast, that the topic of discussion is going to be the significance of, of the Bible. They're going to be the significance of those same feasts that the relatives are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate, surely dominated by the theme of, of God's redemption of Israel. 
And it wasn't at all like we often experience at Christmas time at our place here, in our day, uh, where your relatives, if you were to mention the name of Jesus, they suddenly become a little pale, a little ill to the stomach. Possibly they, they find an exit in a hurry. If you really start talking about Jesus and Christ and sin and redemption, also, you don't have to worry about your relatives pulling out that old, worn-out video of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, accidentally popping that in. No, that should, probably should have been thrown out the previous year. It wasn't like today. Israel, the priests, the families, when they would have a feast, when they'd have a celebration, they were talking about the things of the Lord. They didn't have the same distractions that we allow, that we permit to to overpower us during the holidays, to silence us in the holidays. And when relatives came together to celebrate uh, the festivals in a God-fearing home, at least, such as Zacharias and Elizabeth, the discussion is going to always gravitate towards God's redemption of his people. That is the discussion that would go on in this home. In Leviticus 23, we see that there are seven annual feasts. Three of them are are mandatory, at least with males. So they're called pilgrimage feasts, excuse me. Pilgrimages to Jerusalem, and they'd have to uh, have a place to stay because they lasted several days. And and in this particular home, you've got now a bona fide priest named Zacharias, a a righteous wife, both who clearly realize what God is doing. Not to belabor belabor my point any further, I'm just going to come out right out with this, and you can decide whether you agree. At around 15 years old, Mary was comfortable taking a 60-plus mile trip alone from Nazareth. Her parents apparently We're all right with her in agreement anyhow with her going. She didn't just leave without telling her parents. She knew exactly where Elizabeth's house was, went directly to it, and when she entered, Elizabeth immediately recognized her voice. I don't believe this is loose conjecture at all. Mary had spent several religious holidays and feasts and festivals at the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth over the years. They were guests in the home of Elizabeth. And during each of these feasts, they usually lasted several days, a lot of times a week and a weekend on each end of it. These families were together. They worshipped together. They celebrated the feasts together. And the women then did just as the church is instructed to do today and revealed in Titus 2 verse 2. The older women are to teach and train up the younger, right? And the elder Elizabeth, I suggest, taught the young Mary the deeper truths of the law, of the prophets. She discipled Mary. They spent numerous occasions together. They knew each other intimately. In fact, I anticipate that Mary, she was probably all too aware of how Elizabeth's neighbors referred to her in a pejorative fashion as the barren one. Mary knew that. She knew how barrenness uh, for Elizabeth had become, according to verse 25, a public disgrace. How she was ridiculed. Mary knew that Elizabeth and Zacharias had been praying, as we know from verse 13, for a child. 
Mary knew all of these things. So when the angel informs Mary in verse 36 that even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived in her old age a son, she who was called barren, Mary's immediately response is, I must go quickly. I must go to her. When Mary is faced with the notion of carrying the holy child of God, she had to rush to the side of the woman who had taught her everything she understands about God. Elizabeth. And if this is accurate, surely Elizabeth had discussed with Mary the next event on the eschatological calendar when they were together. Surely Elizabeth taught Mary how the final prophet in Israel named Malachi warned the people, be on watch for the forerunner. He's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. He's going to announce the arrival of the Christ. These are discussions they would have had. And now, everything that they have discussed as a family, it's playing out right before their eyes. As Mary's voice rings through the courtyard calling out for Elizabeth, exactly as verse 15 had predicted, while still in the womb, John the Baptist is filled with the Spirit. And baby John, he's, he's leaping, he's rejoicing, rejoicing, and he's declaring to his mother, Mama, the Christ! Notice the baby leaps first. John the Baptist is declaring the arrival of Israel's Christ. He hasn't even been born yet. The whole scene really is quite spectacular. And in, in, in verse 44, Elizabeth says to Mary, Behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Blessed is Mary. And, and don't miss the fact that Mary uh, believed what God had told her through the angel that, that she'll bear a child. He'd be called the Son of the Most High God. He, he'll have an eternal reign and, and have a kingdom that would have no end. And why did Mary immediately believe those things when the angel spoke to her? Why was she ready to respond to what Gabriel said? Because she could say to herself, of course, of course. This is exactly what Zacharias and Elizabeth had been teaching me through all these years. I realize exactly what God is doing in Israel. Do you see how important discipleship is? For the next generation to know what God is doing? That's why uh, in our scripture reading earlier it says you, you, you teach them to your sons. You teach them to your grandsons. You carve them on your doorposts. You use them as signs. You memorize them. You impress them on your mind. People, especially the next generation, need to be taught to realize what God is doing. So that, so that when it plays out in front of them someday, when, when God is doing something, they're actually ready to respond. If, if they're not discipled and thus have no clue what God is doing, 
no idea what the Bible is teaching or what the story of the Bible uh, or the narrative of the Bible suggests, they risk not even noticing God at all in their lives. Even when it occurs right before their eyes. You know, you know there are so many people that really have no idea what God is doing. Christians have no idea in their lives what God is doing at all. They have no clue about what should be unique about Christians. It's possible to attend a church week in and week out for years and, and never really see what the fuss is all about. Some are never taught what the scriptures say about what God is doing. Do you realize what God is doing here in the church today? And I ask this because there are numerous snares that can entangle us as Christians who haven't been taught accurately about what God's plan is, about what He's doing, about why we're even here on a Sunday together, why we would do evangelism, why we would help neighborhood kids memorize the Scriptures. I'm going to go over just a few of these snares here today that we can run into, just so you can see how easy it is to get caught up in what God's not doing. And what He's not doing. And then next week we're going to look at Mary's Magnificat. She's going to make some declarations. We're going to see exactly what she was prepared for. But one of the things that God is not doing today, which we see a lot of, God is not saving people today just for the sake of saving them alone. Let me explain. Many churches, many organizations will, will they'll ensure people that, that, that God is saving them through one means or another. Maybe accurate or maybe inaccurate, but they'll ensure people that they're saved, and then they'll suggest that those same people then can just go on the rest of their lives living how they were living. They were just saved for the sake of being saved. Nothing to tack on after the end of that. You just, you're saved now, just go home, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. That's the end of it. That's a lie. We're not saved just to be saved. That's not what God is doing. Yet, yet sometimes people are not taught that God saved us so that He's going to use us to bear fruit in order to expand His kingdom. So what do the people end up doing? Some people who are genuinely saved, they've heard the gospel message, responded. They never told what they're supposed to do. If they're not discipled, they, they might go upon their lives preoccupied with what they were preoccupied before, anesthetizing thyself, killing off the pain. No purpose, just pursuits. They, they end up Actually, a whole lot like they were before they were ever saved. And if a person's not taught or challenged with what God is doing, usually they'll get bored with church. They'll, they'll grow tired of it. They'll find other ways then to consume their time and their lives. And it's really easy for us, we have to admit this, it's very easy for us to invest our entire lives for temporal enjoyment. We have to be careful for that. Uh, you'll hear the motto, from time to time, you know, he who has the most toys wins. 
Psalm 49 verse 10 warns of such an ideology to a man or woman who is, it says, stupid and senseless. And because they perish, because they're going to die anyhow, they leave their wealth, means they leave their stuff to others, leave a garage full. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places are going to last for all generations, we're told, and they've called their lands or their estates after their own names. God says that's senseless. That's not why we're here. And a Christian can remain remain so unaware of what God is doing that their entire lives are invested in enjoying the temporal. Hobbies, acquiring stuff, possessions, multiplying properties. You know, when you talk to this type of person, and I know we all have, we all suffer from this. I'm preaching to myself right here too. When you talk, usually the conversation is about what a person enjoys. I enjoy sports cars. I enjoy sports. I enjoy motorcycles. I enjoy vacationing. I enjoy business ventures. They'll tell you about their pursuits to increase acreage and to, and to buy nicer tractors. But rarely do you hear a discussion about Jesus Christ and what God is doing. They just, they've never been taught. Because they don't know exactly what the Bible says God is doing. And you might ask, it, ask them and they might say that they believe God saved them. But they've never heard any more than that. That's it. God just saved you for the pur- purpose of saving you. But God isn't doing that. The truth is actually found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says we brought nothing into the world so we can take nothing out of it either. And what these people need to be assured or reassured is, is that you can't take it with you. It's really very temporal. It's, it's just a few years, a few decades. But Christ tells us that we can actually send it on ahead. We can send it on ahead. Matthew 6.20, he says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's not the topic today, but you do realize, I hope you realize, Not everyone's going to enjoy the same experience in heaven. You do realize that. It's going to be heaven. But some have sent more on ahead. It's going to be a different experience. That's a discussion for another day. There's a lot about investing in the kingdom in the Gospel of Luke that we will get to. Um, In the meantime, Jesus actually tells us not to be concerned about the things of today. Luke 12.32 Do not be afraid, O little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You know, people who haven't been been taught accurately think that everything's about here and today and what we have now. They... They've invested their lives in the temporal. But people who realize that God is not only saving, He's not just saving, He is building a kingdom, folks. We're going to discuss that more uh, in the next couple weeks. God is building a kingdom, and those people who've been taught about this realize and enthusiastically respond to invest in this building of this beautiful kingdom. 
It's not about here and now. It's, it's about that, the kingdom of heaven that is in the future. And it's the only way to understand these parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price that we find in Matthew chapter 13. Um, you can look at those later. I'm going to read a couple of those to you. Christ says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom is the treasure. Which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Similarly, uh, the pearl of great price. says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, that is again the, again the kingdom. The pearl of great value is the kingdom. When he sees that, when he understands the immense value of the kingdom, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. You see, both the man and the merchant here understood the enormous potential and the return of investment, if I can use that word, investment, in the kingdom. They were taught, they understood with great joy. They converted their resources from the world to capitalize on a future kingdom. Time, talent, and treasure, they invested in the kingdom, not in things that expire when we're 60, 70, or 80 years old. And they took great joy in it. That's the type of stuff that God is, in, is doing. And, and when we realize what God is doing, we want to be investors, and, and, and God here wants to bring you in and me in, each of us in, as a, as a potential partner investor in His kingdom. Talk about that more next week. God didn't save you just to save you. He, he saved you for a purpose, folks. Secondly, and closely related to this, is another thing God isn't doing. This, this is a much, more, this is much gr- more grievous error that persists today. It, it insists that God is helping Christians amass fortune on earth. It tells you actually that is what we're doing. You can see that that is incompatible, incompatible with the Bible. Um, Rather than making ourselves available to build God's kingdom, his kingdom treasure that teaches that God has made himself available to build our kingdom. This is a false teaching where God then becomes a genie. Jesus, in a sense, becomes a head waiter of sorts. And it's making sure your order is right and it's going to get there on time. That's what God is in that theology. It's man-centric. It's not about God's kingdom. It's about my kingdom here today. You cannot reconcile that with Scripture. Uh, Rather than partnering with him, building his marvelous kingdom, God supposedly provided a relationship through his son for the purpose of making your resort stay on earth as enjoyable as possible. But making our stay on earth as pleasurable, as comfortable as possible is not what God is doing, folks. It's not what he's doing. A third group. It's a very active group. Do some good things too. But they still don't exactly realize what God is doing, so they pour all of their energies into improving things that God isn't necessarily prioritizing. 
very easy for a Christian to fall into, very easy for churches to fall into. So follow along with me here. Um, it's easy to fall into the idea that we are, our main purpose on earth is to improve society around us. Our primary purpose is to right the wrongs in society. Now, now as there become more Christians, we see that societies get corrected, right? But our primary purpose is not to right every wrong in society. And we can get drawn into this. And, and it's very easy for churches that are more concerned about their reputation, more concerned about the number in attendance than they are about God's kingdom. They can just kind of set the building blocks of God's kingdom, meaning the gospel aside, and they can endeavor in all kinds of other things. So they'll surely offer activities that make people feel like they're investing their lives wisely, that people might spend a lot of time in them, weekends and holidays and vacations. But because they haven't been taught what God is doing, they don't understand really God's plan, their investments are put into things that have no redemptive value. Because the stumbling block of the gospel has been jettisoned. And it can happen both to local churches and Christian organizations. Let me give you some uh, examples, some illustrations, because you look a little puzzled. Some local churches, they might establish a soup line for the poor where the gospel by design is omitted because they don't want to bother people with sin or the gospel. Others might rally their people behind a weekend of putting a roof on a dog shelter to do something that they feel is good that has no real redemptive value. But the gospel in many of these is never involved. People being redeemed and the kingdom building process does not go forward. People are just really busy with stuff. And the Apostle Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then a chapter earlier, he says, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of churches are boasting in a lot of things that they're doing that have nothing to do with the cross or redemption or building God's kingdom. Now, does that mean, I know the obvious question you have in your mind, uh, does that mean that we never get involved with community events? No, that's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm suggesting but I would be cautious to the extent of the involvement with another organization that omits the gospel. I could list a whole gamut of church and parachurch organizations, ministries that started out Christian that eventually dropped Christ crucified. They dropped the kingdom, basically is what they've done. Uh, either for social acceptance, to, to be more palatable to those around them, or for the sake of fundraising, bringing in more money. They, they remove the stumbling block of the cross. And here are just a few, some notable. Young Men's Christian Association. YMCA, right? YWCA. No longer have anything to do with preaching the gospel. 
The Boy Scouts of America, initially a Christian organization, there's some remnants in there, but they've turned away from the doctrines of Christ and the doctrines of the Bible. At the founding of the Red Cross, they were a Christian organization, originally out of Geneva. Today their website says this, and I quote, In order to continue to enjoy the confidence of all, the Red Cross may not take sides in hostilities or engage at any time in the controversies of a political, racial, religious, or ideological nature. The Red Cross is ashamed of the cross. Here's one you'll be very familiar with. Organization has done a lot of good. Millard Fuller. He was a Christian who, before he died, began a ministry building low-class houses. That ministry came now to date to build 400,000 homes. Millard died quite a long time ago. What is it called? Habitat for Humanity. Most of us have a pretty soft spot for that. They had done a lot of good. Are they still with the gospel? Well, let me read from their website. Under a section titled, Non-Proselytizing Policy. It says, quote, Habitat for Humanity and its affiliate organizations will not proselytize. Nor will Habitat work with entities or individuals who insist on proselytizing as part of their work with Habitat. This means that Habitat will not offer assistance on the expressed or implied condition that people must adhere or to convert to any particular faith or listen and respond to a message designed to induce conversion to a particular faith. With all due respect, why would I want to spend my life in that? God is not doing that. I would rather build homes where you can share the gospel with the people that you're giving the home to. There's opportunities for that. There's opportunities to do good. Don't get me wrong. But it must have the gospel if God is going to be involved with it. We need to see that it's a bigger picture than the here and now. It's not just building homes today and putting a roof on a structure today and and building things for ourselves today. It's about the kingdom. It's about the future entirely. And can you see that if we don't pay close attention to what the Bible teaches, about what Scripture teaches about our purpose and what God is doing, we can easily become distracted and invest our entire lives in something that God isn't even involved with. Do you get my point? And the world is going to strive to pressure us into this mold into their mold. And they're going to say, you know, rather than preaching the Bible and wasting your time talking about Jesus, why don't you do something useful and pick up a hammer? Well, I'll gladly pick up a hammer, but I'm not going to stop talking about Jesus. Or, or they might say, um, you know, if you're really a Christian, because they want to define Christianity, they'll say, if you're truly a Christian, then you're going to accept people however they are, right? Because Jesus did that regardless of, of their sexual persuasion or regardless of what they like to, do, like to do, you just have to love them exactly how they are. And you shouldn't ask them to change either. Don't expect them to repent at the preaching of the gospel. That's not what God's doing. We're going to see that God is purifying a people. That when the, when the Holy Spirit indwells you, it has a sanctifying work on us. It makes us more like Christ each week as we proceed through our life. 
I'm far from perfect, but I'm far from what I was 15 years ago. And I anticipate the same is with each of you as well. We need to know what the Bible is teaching us so we're investing in what God is involved with. God is purifying his people. We'll talk about that some more next week as well. Do you see how well we have to know our Bibles? How well we have to tell others what is going on? Or we can get sucked into a lot of things and use our lives for things that really God isn't involved with. Sometimes we just need to be ready to reply, I'm sorry, God isn't involved with that. God isn't doing that. What exactly is he doing? We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to look at Mary's Magnificat. We'll understand more of what God is doing because Mary knew what God is doing. Elizabeth knew what God is doing. When we look at Zacharias in, in a couple of weeks and he prophesies, he knows what God is doing and we need to know as well. But before we depart, just a moment, I need to make a couple of notations because it's, it's so inherent in the text, in this passage, concerning the nature of these two babies. We have, we have two infants here in the womb. One is six months old, John the Baptist. The other one has just been conceived. You know, Mary, maybe it took a week to get down there. Three weeks, who knows? Nonetheless, when Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, Elizabeth cries out, the mother of my Lord even while just a few weeks old at the most. Elizabeth, the Holy Spirit, as it prophesies through her, because she was filled with the Spirit, identifies that young baby child in Mary as Lord. And then at six months old, you've got John the Baptist who is already declaring Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't even have a theology for that. Filled with the Spirit from the womb. And when we look at Scripture, the personhood of the womb is so important. You can go back into Leviticus, I believe it's chapter 22, in some of the sundry laws. And it talks about uh, hypotheticals that you can gauge a judgment on. A judge could use them uh, for a sentence because they're hypothetical and how he might rule in something. And and there it says, if if a man were to be in a struggle with another man and, and a pregnant woman were to be struck... And if it were to come that that there would be a loss of life, meaning the loss of the child, that's why it actually has a pregnant woman in the context. It's talking about the child. If if there is death, if death occurs, the penalty will be life for life. It doesn't worry about whether identifying 21 days old or 8 months old. Life is life. And we go to other places in the Bible all over and and go to... um, Jacob and his, and his sons, Esau and, or Esau and Jacob, Isaiah's son, or Isaac's sons. I'm doing this all off the cuff, excuse me. And they're struggling in the womb, folks. Before they're even, even born, God is saying, or, or they're saying there's two nations struggling in your womb. Folks, the person head of life, if it isn't so clear here with Jesus Christ and John the Baptist in the womb, I don't know how to make it any clearer. Next week we're going to talk about why these men are coming, why John the Baptist is already announcing and jumping and leaping for joy, and why there's going to be a Christ arriving soon through Mary's Magnificat. Let's pray.